All right, John. Uh, we are back. Back from a little bit of a layoff. Yeah, sorry, guys. We've been away about four weeks. So welcome back to the Publisher Lab, everybody. My name is Tyler Bishop, as you guys probably know. And alongside me, as always, is John Cole. Hello. Hello, folks. Yeah, so uh, I'm actually here with you in London now, John. So we're, we're back together. So it's nice to not have to record this thing remotely for a change. Yeah, it's great. And welcome to London. And uh, welcome to uh, the carnival that was the London Marathon yesterday. I'm sitting here very sore, sore of limb. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, did the, you did the London Marathon yesterday. How'd that go? Yeah, it was tough. Uh, I, th- <laughs> I think I was probably about 30% underprepared to where I should have been. 30% underprepared. Yeah, so I, at, at what point, what percentage would you have to increase to make it prepared? So you're yeah, 30% underprepared. Prepared. Yeah, basically I had some injuries and I didn't, I couldn't complete my training schedule. So uh, I got around in five hours, which is what I wanted to do, but I had to run through, you know, the pain. Basically. <laughs> I ran all the way, and it was it was just really really hard. So that explains the wheelchair today. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I'm sitting down. And <laughs> every time I get up, Tyler has to help me. So <laughs> let's just sit down, just bed in for a bit. So I'll, I mean, quite a bit has happened since the last the last show that we did, and I've been getting emails from listeners asking us, "Hey, what happened to the podcast?" So it's back. Hopefully, we'll get a couple episodes here in the next couple weeks for you guys to listen to. But uh, I mean, we can just jump right into quite a few things. I know you were at Ad Week. I was at Digiday. There's been some crazy things that have been happening with Google throughout that time. Yeah. And then we actually have some, uh, another guest with us today that's joining us. It's here with us for this event that we're going to have here in London. Um, I guess it's a good time as any to welcome uh, Dr. Greg Sterick, who's one of the data scientists at Azoic, is actually hanging out with us today as well. Hey, guys. <laughs> good to be here. Hey, Greg, you, you don't do a lot of podcasts, do you? No, this would be my first time, yeah. This is your first podcast? First podcast. Ever? Ever. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it's neat to hold a mic. I feel very important. <laughs> That's generally how we feel. That's the only reason we do this. <laughs> so uh, I thought it would be fun to kind of get kicked off, start talking about maybe just some of these um, – you know, we're, we're preparing for an event here in the UK with Mediatel. Uh, there's an event where we're, it's it's a lot of digital publishers that are going to be talking about. Well, I'll let you touch on it. You're on a, you're on a panel tomorrow. Yeah, I'm on a panel tomorrow uh, with the with the Guardian, the Financial Times, Hearst Magazines, and uh, MEC, which is an ad agency. And we're, we're doing what we're doing now, which is have a, uh, have a good chat. It's basically going to be a Q&A about artificial intelligence and how uh, digital publishing is being affected by that, you know, that sort of move towards artificial intelligence. So it's kind of right in our wheelhouse, obviously. Um, And we have about 60, 70 people coming to a breakfast debate tomorrow. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So that's the reason you're in town as well and, and obviously Greg. Yeah, so, so uh, Greg's actually doing a presentation uh, at, at the event as well. Greg, maybe you can share with us, like, uh, so give us, like, maybe the inside scoop on what it is that you're going to be sharing at this event tomorrow. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'm going to be uh, talking for about 20 minutes and kind of talk about the research that we've been doing at Ezoic and some of the things that we found from um, using AI and, uh, you know, what, what we've learned from uh, – yeah, the, the insights in the, in the AI and um, really the, you know, the kind of the message that I can bring is, you know, my background is as a physicist and, you know, as a physicist, I really want to find laws and there's just not a lot of laws in terms of like, well, you should put this many ads on a page or, you know, you should use native or not use native really. Greg, just tell us how many ads we should put on a page. <laughs> just just break it open just just tell us fixed amount what do we need to do what's what what is just the best 
best number of ads to put on a page? It's it's the test. You have to run a lot of tests. There's no there's so, no ready. Some more ads at the top then. <laughs> <laughs> There are rules. <laughs> yeah, so um, really what we found is, you know, the, the thing that you really have to be optimizing for and think, is thinking more big picture, you know, step out of the CPM and really think about this user experience and um, those classic user experience metrics like time on site, page use per visit, bounce rate. So listeners, this podcast have probably kind of heard us beat that drum before, but so what what exactly have we sh- have we been able to see in, inside of those metrics? So uh, page views per visit, for example, like what what trends do you see in data regarding page views per visit as it relates to things like revenue? Yeah, so uh, page views per visit is a really interesting one, and it it varies between sites, but there's sort of a a pattern that uh, emerges across all of the sites, which is that. Um, those first few page views, getting someone, getting a user from page one to page two, will double the revenue. Uh, page two to page three, you may get that same, you know, major, major, major jump. Um, at it eventually starts to flatten off uh, to a, you know, a, a smaller increase per page view. But even as they flip to, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen pages, uh, you'll still see more revenue, more revenue, more revenue. That's that's really interesting. So, and and I mean, the way that you describe it makes me think like, oh, if I have a site, I should be focusing one hundred percent on page views. Is is that the case? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, the, the, I think Greg, I just want you to tell me hard and fast, like what it, what it is I need to do. You, you know, it, it really boils down to user experience, and I think you know what gets those users going from page view to page view. You know, is isn't really next sentence, next page, next sentence, next page. It's it's having engaging content that the users actually want to, to read and interact with and they, they want to know what's on the next page. Uh, because ultimately, if, if they, you have some, you know, sort of rebuttal or, you know, the, the no vote, the, the bounce, uh, that, that's over. You know, your, your revenue stream is over for that user and yeah. they may never come back. I heard you talking earlier and you said that bounce rate is the enemy of user experience. And I thought that was really profound in its, in its own way. Thank you. <laughs> well, I think I think it's going to be really interesting to hear uh, a little bit more about what you have to share tomorrow. Um, I think the event in general is going to be pretty cool, and I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Um, there's been quite a few events so far, kind of kicking this year off. And uh, uh, before we get to some of the more recent ones, John, you were at Ad Week uh, probably a little little less than a month ago. Maybe you could maybe fill me in. I, I wasn't able to make it here, here in London. So maybe kind of fill me in on what happened at Adweek. Yeah. It's a little bit overshadowed by, uh, the news that came out that week, which was, um, on YouTube, there was uh, the extremist material appearing right. next to publisher content. That's right. Well, it was actually ads, um, and a ton of, um, so it's Google's display network, the, the which is all part of like a, a Google buy. If you go into AdWords. um, they reserve the right to show it on Google.com or Google Google Display Network. So YouTube being part of Google Display Network, they were putting ads next to extremist content. And so that all blew up that week. And a lot of it, uh, there was some really interesting discussions about ad fraud, um, particularly with regard to video and, uh, you know, how to combat it and so on. Uh, but that, it, it really kind of highlighted actually how, na- I, I think, how naive um, a lot of... Um, you know, advertisers are as they're thinking that actually, you know, if they don't use all of the tools and controls in a bidding environment, and they say, "Well, just put me anywhere," then that now that's not excusing obviously what Google uh, allowed through, but Google have made a change since then that you have to have ten thousand views into a channel 
in YouTube before you can start earning any money. And I think that's probably going to just stamp it right out. Yeah. So. And I think there's probably some more controls they can put on it if it continues to be uh, an issue or a problem. But, and I mean, just to sort of put it in context, I mean, Google um, eliminates about 99% of, uh, you know, ads that shouldn't show. And, but other platforms like Twitter, you know, kind of hate speech in Twitter and yeah. same thing in, in Facebook. I, I think they estimate that it's only about 50% of Facebook and about 75% yeah. in Twitter. I mean, they're a lot more lax. And also it's a bigger problem. It's, it's a tough problem, isn't it? Because how yeah. do you, you know, if I'm, if I'm recording a video in YouTube and I have views that are extreme, but I'm not coming across, you know, how do, how do you interpret the, you know, what is, you know, what is real extremism what could be satire, do you see what I mean? So, um, and all of the questions from the journalists, and I was sitting about four rows back and there was all these sort of BBC journalists and people from, and cameras, they were all, they were all there for, you know, to, to see the, you know, the Google guy, let's Yeah, they, love, they want to watch him fry. That's right. And, it, and I, I've, I thought, you know, are they really expecting Google to be the content police? And they, and they don't want that either because what you see then is, I mean, there's a little bit of that right now where there's this backlash on Google changing their policies about uh, different things. And you see it also in the world of SEO where they often will change the way that things in, in the favor of quality. And then you see publishers throw their hands up and say, hey, you know, you shouldn't be changing these things. So we, you know, stop, stop putting more restrictions on us, more rules. It's harder to follow. Yeah. So I think Google, I mean, there's always going to be criticism, but I do think that they do a good job of finding a fair balance from, for the most part between providing policy and then also providing publishers um, freedom that they can kind of navigate their business around. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think Google does a very good job. Um, I'm not just saying that because the whole Google connection, but I think they actually do a very good job because they're using – they're going on um, – you know, on a scalable solution. You, there's no way you can engage people to, I think it's 400 hours of, of video content per minute that's uploaded to Google, uh, YouTube. How can you possibly have a manual solution to that? So the, the, they're, doing, they're, they're definitely doing their best. I think um, people obviously want to have their cake and eat it. They want to have huge reach from Google, if you're an advertiser, and total security. Now, it's perfectly possible to stop showing ads on pages with nudity or porn content through, you know, using uh, a system that will detect that for you. And the same thing with, with words. But I, uh, I, I think this, it's a good debate because it's also opening the fact that we want to have a nice open um, kind of environment, a nice healthy ecosystem. But yeah, it was it was like being in the middle of a, of a circus. I think it actually hit the news in the States as well, didn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a pretty it was a pretty uh, pretty big deal. And we saw kind of the same thing where at Digiday, um, it was kind of talked about a little bit and they asked the CEO of Bloomberg if uh, what he thought of it and if he thought that mo that a lot of these um, uh, advertisers pulling their inventory from uh, from Google was theater or if it was a real response. And his response was uh, that he thought it was theater and that that you see a lot of these major publishers do this sort of thing as kind of a statement to kind of stand up and say, hey, we want we want these changes made. But knowing full well, there's not many marketers on, I mean, there's not many CMOs that are inside of these organizations that feel real comfortable with having their ad inventory pulled from Google, which is one of the, I mean, it, 
mm. buy for buy. It's one of the best play platforms that you have to be able to distribute your advertisements. You take that out of the mix and then all of a sudden you're struggling. So I don't know that inside of the entire organization that everybody's behind these types of these these types of publicity stunts. Yeah. And and I also think there were a few publishers out there with a little bit of an axe to grind because obviously what they're trying to do is win away direct ad dollars to their sure. own sites. So it's actually in their interest to kind of Absolutely. pump it up. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good, it's a good debate. But then mo moving on from that and the kind of, um, you know, the, the overall sense I got was, you know, still digital is on the up. You know, uh, you look at how much money is being made from uh, TV and, and still press, and yeah, that was all this money coming back into digital is great. For you mentioned this earlier that someone from uh, Gannett uh, was talking about the about whether or not uh, where we were at in terms of digital advertising. And what was really surprising was, you know, even though it feels in a lot of ways like we're still at the beginning uh, or, you know, we're right in the middle of the singer at the end. It's been going on forever. Uh, we, we actually are very much in the beginning because only about 40% of advertising is done through digital means and about 60% is still in print and television, which is pretty crazy because they're, they're saying that, that those those two metrics will probably flip in the next two years. So about 60% in digital, 40% in television. And, and I, see, I see that as being really good news for all digital content producers. Yeah, if you're, if you're really a content producer, that's great news because we're talking about um, I mean, you're talking about pretty considerable uh, uplift in terms of the spend that's going to be happening out there for somebody. Yeah, I mean, digital ad spend still on the rise. You know, 15% uh, a year still, and that's not that's not the case for certainly not the case for press. You know, no. um, so yeah, that that that's what um, I, I guess to explain to the listeners. That's why we've been uh, we've been away, haven't we? To kind of yeah. going to these things and. And, and listening uh, to all of the debates that have been going on. You know, I thought it was really interesting. So we talked we talked a little bit about, like, Google and kind of the fair criticism there. I think the duopoly has gotten a lot of, uh, I mean, I mean, it is it is the it is the whipping boy for the digital publishing industry right now. And I, and I understood it a little bit better because at Digiday, one of the things they talked about was the idea of once your content goes on a platform like Facebook, for example, it makes your content a commodity. So... The Washington Post does an article about Donald Trump and something that he's done. And then uh, Greg's basement blog.com writes a similar article, but with his slant on it. And uh, as soon as they hit Facebook and they hit your newsfeed, both of those pieces of content have equal credibility as they are both on the same platform. So in that mind, like, you know, your news becomes a commodity, you know. Yeah, it's on Facebook. And so there was this big discussion about branded content, about having, you know, getting people to come directly to your site or influencing people to come directly to your site um, because once they read it on your site, they expect a certain brand, they expect a certain type of quality to the news, whether it's good or bad. And they use Breitbart is kind of an example of, you know, a type of news where the readers there expect a certain slant to the news, right? Bre Breitbart is one of those pretty right-wing... It's a very far-right website, I guess, digital content producer in the United States. And so the people that... They, they said, you know, 50% of people may hate it and may not believe a word that's ever printed on it, but the other 50% would say, this is this is the news that I believe and this is the news yeah. that I trust. And they say that, that all publishers really kind of want that reaction from the readers, that they want to feel like our readers, when they read our news, love it or hate it or 
you know what you're getting here and that's what we want. And when our content exists inside of a search engine or on Facebook, it's a commodity. It's measured against all the other results or other things in the news feed. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective and it gave me new insight into the, some of the challenges that uh, the large publishers in the industry are uh, kind of going against. I guess I guess that's always been the case with Google, hasn't it? If you think about it, um, you know, when you rank in Google, you're being given options. So, you know, you type something to Google, it comes up in a list. You are given an option as a user as to what you want. I think that's a different experience to when you're in Facebook, you are being basically delivered according to the algorithms. Same, it's an algorithm in exactly the same way that Google is an algorithm or, you know, whatever, whatever you would call it these days. But in a Facebook feed, you're, you're sort of getting that delivered to you yep. with somebody's name behind it, like, you know, my cousin so you know so and so has forwarded this on is it real or is okay. it not and greg shares donald trump kicks dog <laughs> <laughs> i mean these are the, and and the obvious fake news they they tend to get a lot of more clicks and uh, the whole fake news thing uh, was a big uh, yeah i think uh, it's news it, item. it's kind of triggered i think a lot more awareness around um, i wouldn't maybe say it's a problem i would say that it's a um it's, it's a fundamental thing that exists inside of the space. And the reason why I don't want to say it's a problem is is it's not something that's been fixed. It's not something that necessarily people are trying to solve right now necessarily. Because really think about it. it if you say it is a problem, it would it would insinuate that somebody like Facebook or Google should fix the problem. And they've, they've kind of given some platitudes about like, oh, we're going to cut back on fake news and all this kind of stuff. But really, they don't want to police the internet. And so it's it's kind of a, a, a problem that the publishers are going to have to solve themselves. Yeah. And it, I mean, it makes sense that you want to brand your content, you want to brand your site because – you know, if I'm, if I'm, uh, you know, USA Today or somebody like that, I really want to make sure that when people come to my site, they read news from me that they know that it's, you know, in their case, they would say factual and accurate um, as opposed to, you know, gregsbasementblog.com. Sorry, Greg, I keep hammering you on this. <laughs> what do you have against my blog? Uh, I just, I, I think that it's clearly, it's clearly slanted and in, in a biased view and 50% of the people say that. <laughs> They're fifty percent love it, <laughs> and I think I think it's that it's that that dynamic that I think that 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 publishers are struggling with right now is that they're they're the ones that are having to solve this for themselves. Yeah, it it isn't a uh, it, it isn't something that is easily easily solved. But I, I, did you notice that Facebook then gave the responsibility back to the user to check their sources? I yeah, don't know if you saw yeah, I saw that they started actually le- uh, linking. They said they'll, they'll say things. That the this article or something like that has been previously fact checked or is proven false or something like that, and they'll actually link to sites like Snopes. Uh-huh, have you, have yeah. you seen those? Yeah, they I, actually do rich snippets and they they link to other sites. And I, my first thought was like, wow, good for Snopes. They've they've really nailed it here and yeah, gotten yeah. into a great niche here where they're getting a lot of free traffic. Um, but nevertheless, I'm not sure that that's I don't know. I don't want to say enough because I really don't want the platforms doing a lot of policing here. I think that's bad for publishers. I think ultimately they'll want that power back if they give it over. Yeah, I think it's also bad for the internet. I don't think we need to have censorship or, or some sort of funnel by which you know things get checked. I, I think it should be down to the user. But unfortunately, the way that people receive their information, particularly you know Facebook, it it, it is one of these. You know, you are being delivered something. And you might be on there to 
look at holiday photos from your friends or something, but actually what you're getting then is, uh, you know, something in your, in your feed and you are being delivered something and that's totally different to how things used to be. And I think now that the veracity of that information is being questioned, it's changing, particularly I think how publishers engage with Facebook because, um, you know, you would produce a Facebook instant article and you produce it and it goes out and they give you the virality and that's kind of how it works and you get, obviously yeah. you get the monetization. Yeah, I also saw an article the other day and it was, oh, man, I wish I could, I can probably look it up here pretty quickly. Um, but it, it, they were talking about one of the, um, there's a major digital publisher that did a lot with Facebook instant articles and they sh saw their lowest impressions that they've ever seen on Facebook. So their articles were actually being shared less organically via Facebook than it ever had in the past. Yeah, the virality and the, and, and I think what you've got to bear in mind is that virality inside Facebook is a, is governed by the overall rules of the system, not necessarily by, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you know anything about this, Greg? The, um, I was going to say it's like you put in a uh, you put you put an item um, you put an item out there it will it won't be seen by all your friends right yeah I, I think you know if you if you think about the problem of of like fake news and you mentioned like you know you get on there to go look at your friends' photos well the I think one of the reasons that can contribute to the the fake news problem is Facebook sort of optimize its algorithm for engagement you know like what pictures are people liking the most and what kind of statuses are liking the most and those will float up on your newsfeed because you are probably going to be more interested in it because your sure. friends are more interested in it and then when you know you have an election with um lots of you know fake news floating around people are sharing that because like on both sides you know it's like oh my god i can't believe the candidate that i'm that i hate said this they don't check the sources on it. And then also you may share it on the other side where it's like, can you believe that they're saying this about the candidate? And then that <laughs> is going through the same algorithm that vacation photos are going through. So that's going to get promoted to the top of the feed. And it just sort of is this like self-perpetuating cycle. Well, so Greg, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is, you know, we're talking, you know, brands were talking about specifically, you know, even if a, if a link click comes from, uh, from Facebook, they're, you know, one of their big, uh, one of the big pushes was it like, hey, it's still coming from Facebook. All these things are the same. It's a commodity. But, you know, you've actually looked at some of the data related to users coming from Facebook versus coming from Google. And I know there's no aggregate learnings necessarily that we can kind of take away from this. But those users do behave differently, right? So if somebody comes from a place like Facebook as opposed to a referral from another site versus direct, those users generally have different behaviors across all sites, right? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean... Yes and no. Yes, <laughs> this is what tricky. You can part tell of, me yeah. I'm wrong. I'm yeah, not like I, I mean, I'm not trying to lead you down a pathway. You know, Greg, tell yeah. us, tell us how they're all yeah. different. Well, it, it's it's an interesting problem because you know we have we can see a lot of uh, data and insights into different types of sites, and you know if you're uh, if if like organic search on a um, like a reference site, though that traffic is definitely different from a social share on an ARB site. Um, but when you start to try to divvy up within a site, um, you know, on that reference site, if it was like, you know, a, a social media share versus direct, it, it gets, it gets hard to make this, these hard and fast rules. Um, and it's different on, even on the URL level, the way the traffic will interact with, um, you know, users will interact with, uh, 
the content on that kind of level. Yeah, that's interesting. So to, uh, to point out my last one, I actually found this. So it says, um, uh, a medium post investigating declining Facebook reach has set off the most recent alarm bells among publishers. Uh, deputy editor of uh, Digital News of the Chicago Tribune posted that since January, the Tribune has seen a significant drop in the reach of its posts on Facebook, despite having grown its user base. And there's, it looks like there's a whole bunch of other publishers that jumped on the bandwagon here and said the same thing. So I think is that is that kind of continues to happen. Um, John, what do you what do you think? Uh, you, you and Greg are sharing a microphone, so you like have to guess who I'm gonna who I'm gonna talk to <laughs> I'm next. Sort of like passing it back and forward, passing it back and forward. But no, I think you know is that is that kind of happens. You know, Facebook here recently. You know, there's kind of been a lot of press around how publishers are maybe sorting of, of abandoning them. They they've always had this kind of like walled garden reputation, but they they were trying to pretend like the, maybe they were going to be friendlier to publishers here recently with instant articles in which with some some possible like hat tips to, hey, we're going to allow some header, header bidding partners into uh, our platform as well. But it seems like here recently they've, you know, with some of their feed changes and things like that, they may be on the outs with publishers and they may be having to kind of save some face here. I do, yeah, I definitely get a feeling that instant articles needs to change or it's certainly that, that methodology of producing content for Facebook users, which costs you money to produce, which you, you're producing anyway, let's be honest, um, but the returns that you get on that versus the returns you get on producing it for, on your own site, uh, I think that is the law of diminishing returns. If you don't get that virality, as we know, I mean, Greg just men mentioned ARB sites. There are people out there who produce content, host it on their own site, monetize it, you know, let's, you know, with a variety of, of uh, ad networks, Google included, the money they can make from that actually covers and makes a profit if they go and buy clicks from Facebook. And that, that is an imbalance in the, in the ecosystem. You cannot make as much money inside uh, from, from Facebook as you can from Google. And that is part of this whole you know, duopoly problem. If people didn't know what was duopoly, um, people were, were saying that it, it's a, I think, is it, so I just had the office dog come over and say hello. <laughs> totally distracted. He's the cutest dog ever. Uh, our, our, the, the main issue, Tyler, that I see is that we have these reach plays, which is um, Facebook and Google. And if you're an advertiser, you need to be in there in order to get that reach. Absolutely. To be able to retarget people, to contextually target people, and to get your return on your ad dollars. Publishers, when they're... Um, hosting those ads, so you've got Facebook Audience Network now, which is basically Facebook's answer to AdSense, the way I look at it, or the start of that. Um, that is a better play for them than going um, down the route of trying to force everybody to produce content inside Facebook. That's, I, I think that's my kind of issue, um, is that if you try and force people into this, you must do something. Um, you better make sure it's worth their while. But those kind of partnerships are rarely 50-50, yeah. sort of beautiful exchange of value to the tune of 50%. It's, it's always going to come out better for one person or the other. And in that case, you know, Google control the, the fire hose, don't they? Yeah, they do. Whether you're going to get that traffic or not. 
And I think it's interesting. Uh, that's why I think so many publishers have found AMP to be much more attractive, right? In terms of if you want like a fast loading instant, you know, like it's instant articles versus AMP and a lot of uh, whenever you kind of look at those two different technologies. But even even AMP has a, there's a problem there with AMP because instead of people going to your site, you're going to... A cached Google. A cached Google page. So not even coming to your site. And you quite often you don't have, even have a menu. So you don't have the op opportunity to keep them as a visitor. They just swipe left or right and they will go to another article on the same subject, which, you know, it's not necessarily a good user experience either because you've just gone to something that you want. Do you want to see another version of the same thing? But John, they've done surveys. <laughs> we were joking before the podcast about the inaccuracy of surveys to predict user experience. Greg, why is that? Why are why are user experience surveys like not good? <laughs> well, if you, I mean, if you think about, it's like a Yelp review rating, right? Like you're only going to rate it if you've had a great time or a terrible time. So there's a, a selection bias that's going to inherently skew the results. What happens if you put me? We, let's say we grab everybody in this room because we're in we're in a cafe here uh, inside of Baldur's and Capital here in London. And let's say we grab everybody here plus everybody that's upstairs. And we put us all in a room and we look at a website and we say, "Good experience, bad experience," and then show them, you know show us all ten different ones. What's wrong with the you know like aren't those our subjective opinions? Aren't those things valid? Uh, well, you know, there's yeah about 10 people in the room right now, so we're going to definitely have a sample size problem. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't trust that to sort of scale out to all of gregsbasementblog.com. <laughs> it's it's far more credi credible resource than that. You wouldn't want to put your name on something like that. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, you know, I think with the one of the problems with, um, you know, doing a survey-based approach is you're, you're relying also on someone's memory and... Um, sort of more of what they decide to sort of filter out from their experience uh, onto the survey. And so, you know, what, what are definitely much more reliable metrics would be things like how long did they actually stay on the page? Did they go to the second page? Are they bouncing? Like the classic UX metrics to, to bring a survey into that is, is kind of overkill. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because you know, they did surveys a, a, a while back, and I remember this one in particular because Google had done a survey and 76% of respondents said that they never clicked on ads. Like, they gave given choices like rarely, sometimes, all those kinds of things, but never. And 76% of people said they never click on ads. And so, you know, somehow this industry, this $80 billion industry has just kind of happened off this very small percentage of people that do are clicking on ads. Apparently. And do you know what was funny about that survey is that they actually got the respondents signed up through ads <laughs> like a percentage of the people i mean i never click on ads i, I don't remember how i got here though <laughs> it's good and and that kind of um, makes me think as well greg something that i really enjoyed from we just had a little um private kind of run through of greg's presentation for tomorrow is that ab the decision of, of doing ab testing um just explain that for the, uh the listeners because I, I thought that was a really good example um of 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 uh, this personalization sort of route towards personalization for the internet. Which yeah. I so if I can't do a survey, why, why can't I? Why shouldn't I just do an A/B test? So if I can't trust the survey, can I just say I'm going to take this version of the site and test it, see how people respond, and then test another version of the site and which one is better? Just pick that one. Sure. I mean that's that's a way, and it's a it's a way towards stepping away from just a survey method. But there's a, a fundamental problem in A/B testing, uh, which is that you know you run the test and 
60% of the time version A wins and 40% of the time version B wins, you say, okay, great, I have a winner, I'm going to go with version A. Um, but by doing so, you have done an A-B test and run an AA result and implemented it at an AA level. Um, what happens to those other 40% where actually I liked version B better? What if 60% of the time it works every time, Greg? <laughs> It's a yeah, good point. Good point. But yeah, Touché, science. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think you know when when you you start to think about this sort of A/B methodology, there's there's a, this fundamental flaw, and and the, the ultimate way around that is actually listening uh, to all of the data. You know that forty percent who preferred version B. Um, you know there's. Why, why not serve version B and why not a version C or a D or an E? And, you know, as you, you get more data, you can start to become more certain about when to implement version A or version B or version C or so on. Yeah, it, it's particularly interesting. John, I don't know if, you, I, and I don't want to call any specific publishers out because I, I've seen it a couple times here recently, but you see publishers that are slowly but surely implementing small changes on their site and they're saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying new layouts or I'm trying new uh, places for subscription boxes uh, or things like that if you're a larger publisher. And they're saying, well, we're only trying it on 5% of traffic. We're seeing how people respond before we roll it out uh, long term. And it sounds it sounds very data-driven and it sounds correct. But, you know, per what we just learned from Greg, this is something we've actually been learning for a while, right? It's that you are really tackling a very a very small segment of data and you're really not learning a lot about your users with things like this. And so... It's it, it's really shooting in the. I mean, as as much as it sounds like it's data driven, you're really shooting in the dark when you do things like this. Yeah, because you've got to, and any testing that you do has got to be, um, you know, statistically relevant to the overall kind of population. And if you're if you're running on five percent, is that a randomized five percent? Is that a geo? You know, a, and then over time, you know, it, uh, the results you get on a Sunday might be different to the results you get on a Monday for a test. So you better make sure that you're evening that out and of course that gives it is the amount of time that you need so how many sundays have we seen is this a normal sunday or is this a skewed sunday because of the test it's an ice cream sunday if you will <laughs> tyler i think you're jet lagged okay i i am I, i'm tired didn't sleep well last night you're dreaming of ice cream it is almost up, it is almost i was up late reading greg's basement blog there's all kinds of conspiracy <laughs> theories and all kinds it's of fake news <laughs> it's fake news 100 percent. it's uh it's it's been it, it's been a really um, interesting last kind of four weeks, hasn't it? Uh, uh, for the the whole industry, I feel like is in flux right now. It, it is, and I think you know, there's, I mean, like to throw on top of all that, last week there's this announcement uh, that Google, the next edition of Google Chrome may, and this comes back, I mean, roundabout way, it comes back to our survey discussion earlier, but like. You know, Google, the next edition of Google, Google Chrome may contain ad blockers. So Google, like the enemy of ad blockers, is saying, well, we might uh, in our browsers, maybe we're going to put a little ad blockers in there. Yeah. So, wow. So, John, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on because you've been in this industry for a long time. And maybe you can maybe give me a little bit of perspective on this because I think publishers like freaked out hard when they first heard that. But I think the way that you explained it to me, it 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 potentially has, it could potentially be good. It could it could have some benefits. Uh, so I'll caveat at all. Let's let's remember that there used to be pop ups, um, back in the day, and they oh, were those they were, were the days. they were eliminated. as a marketer, those were the days. Do you remember those pop ups that you used to, you'd, you'd have to sort of chase around the screen with, and and <laughs> as you've moved your mouse towards it, it would sort of move. Do you remember those? <laughs> yeah. So we don't have those anymore. Or if they are there, then they're, they're prevented from showing 
by Chrome, or uh, Safari, I think, does the same thing, right? Um, so it's not, it, 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 what it's doing, though, is it's taking it to another level. I mean, I think pop-ups, you know, who knows? I, I, I'm fairly sure that anything like that is going to be bad for user experience, but making the decisions based on um, real data, I, I would... I would actually kind of um, welcome it. I do think it puts a lot of power in Google's hands because they can, of course, and I'm sure they won't do this because it would be um, they would end up in court. But if they ended up um, getting rid of more non-Google ads than Google ads, for example, but you can see the temptation, right? Get your yeah. hand caught in the cookie jar, <laughs> as people say. Um, uh, but I do think, but I do see the sentiment behind it, which is um, you know this coalition for better ads, which is to try and reduce uh, ad annoyance and things like you know full size vignette ads on mobile. How, are they good for user experience or not? Autoplay video, autoplay video, uh, hover up ads, hover in ads from the side. Um, they're all pretty distracting. Are they annoying? I think it really what we've got to do is work out what on what basis are they excluding these ads from loading in that browser and from what I understand having just really only read about it in the last few days is that they're using the information from the coalition for better ads and that survey data right that survey data it's paid for respondents answering surveys on whether an ad isn't or, or a set of ads is annoying and that is not scientific so therefore they would be excluding uh, the opportunity to monetize from publishers based on paid-for respondents' survey data, which is unreliable. So I would not welcome that, and I think it would be a disaster. Well, say a disaster. I think it would be um, unfair, because um, if you're having your ads blocked as an... Uh, and I know what they're doing. it. Obviously, they're doing it to, to, to give an alternative to using these ad blockers like Adblock Plus which people, they just say, I don't like any of these, let's just get rid of all the ads. Yeah. And of course that's, and, and AdBot Plus, don't forget, they have um, acceptable ad locations. Yeah, so they, I mean, it's which, a shakedown on their part as well. So, yeah. I mean, you would much rather this sort of thing be happening on the Google side than it would be on the user side, you know, with third party. That being said, I think the, the, the conspiracy theory uh, with Google, uh, not even so much a conspiracy theory, I think the concern that people have is that you have... Google now that would come in and basically say these ads are acceptable or not acceptable according to IAB standards, uh, you know, the Coalition for Better Ads, which Google is like, head, you know, head on the board of. And so uh, they're going to collect the survey data and say, hey, listen, autoplay video, all these different types of ads. So if you're a provider, if you're an ad provider, ad demand source that, that delivers those types of ads, hey, you're out of luck now because those ads are no longer going to show. If you're a publisher that has actually leveraged those to your, your profit in the past, you're no, no longer going to be able to see those. Yeah. And I think the concern is, you know, the publishers would say, hey, listen, that's almost antitrust on the part of Google of being able to say, listen, you're on the board of the organization that is choosing, you know, which ads are acceptable or not, and then you're providing technology, you know, in the form of a browser to the majority of the population um, yeah. And then not showing any ads that are basically, you know, very highly slants towards Google ads. But I do think that if you are a quality publisher, this this will be not a major issue. Um, and I do think there'll be more debate before it's all said and done. Yeah, I think um, it's it's important to remember what um, what we're talking about here, which is 
you know, you're trading attention, attention on your content for the attention of an advertiser's content. And how that transfer happens depends on, you know, there has to be a certain amount of interruption, right? Um, at what level is that interruption um, acceptable or not acceptable? I don't think that's up to one company to decide. I do think the data, um, Greg, I, th I think the data here would be, let's say, I mean, a good example would be something like, um, uh, what does a double blue line mean for parking in London, right? And I have no idea. I, I just made it up. Oh. Uh, but uh, let's say there could be a double blue line. I don't know. It's in the back of my brain somewhere. But um, I might be sitting there in my car looking that up on Google. I come to a website. If the, if the ads are preventing me from getting that answer reasonably quickly because I don't want to get a ticket, um, then are the ads okay? Because that'll be a high bounce rate page, won't it? Yeah. They come, they find out what it means, and then they leave. So the chances are the ads on that page will be sort of front and center, like ready to go. Yeah. Because it might be, hey, um, you know, get, it could be a contextual ad based on parking, right? Yeah. Let's say, Google's really good at doing contextual advertising, or it could be retargeting because, uh, or it could be geotargeting because I'm in a specific location of London. See what I mean? So there's, there's so many elements here, yeah. and we're getting some attention based on the fact that me as a user wanted to get some information. If I'm prevented from getting that information, then the ads are too intrusive. If I can still get that information okay and quickly, then surely those ads are all right. But if I have a browser and I'm using Chrome browser on my iPhone and those ads aren't loading because somebody in a survey thought that it looked funny, that isn't scientific. And it's also really unfair on that particular publisher who's just produced some content for the use of the whole world to find out what that meant. See what I mean? Yeah. So it, for me, it, it, it feels like um, if we start introducing subjectivity into what is an industry that should be data-driven and digital then we're totally going off track and it would be a really bad thing. Yeah, I think that that's a great point. And I think, um, I certainly do think that that, that what you mentioned is, um, is, is, is grossly true, which is we want to become more data driven as a, as an industry. And I think, you know, Greg, an interesting part of your, your presentation that you're giving tomorrow, I thought was kind of this contrast between there's almost an asymmetry between advertisers and publishers in terms of the data that they're leveraging, but the data exists for both sides, right? So may, maybe you can dive into that a little bit better and kind of explain that to the audience, because I think it's really fascinating. and It's something I'd never really thought about until you explained it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, if you, if you think about all of the different things, um, that you can get from uh, a, a visit to your website, like uh, where the user is coming from, what type of device the user's on, what type of browser. Um, you, you can go on and on with yeah, all of these different metrics that you can slice that up, how long it takes for the page to load. Um, and then you can dive it even deeper into it and say like, where's the, what ad position is this? Where is it on the page? You know, is it top of the page, bottom of the page? How big is the impression? All these things that, um, you know, there's all these different metrics that, when um, uh, an advertiser is making a bid and says, you know, I want to, I want, I would like that impression, they have all that information at their fingertips. They're they're bidding based on that information, and on the publisher level, you know, the the challenge is like how much, how closely am I paying attention to that? Like how deep do I uh, dissect that information? Am I, am I essentially charging? with the same sophistication in which they're choosing to bid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we, one of the um, slides in my presentation uh, to kind of bring this home is a, is a map of the United States and 
CPM is sort of broken down by state, and you can see very clear trends that um, are maybe not super surprising um, that sort of break down, you know, that there's regions of the country that uh, where the CPM by that state is really high, and there's regions where it's not so high. Give me an example of a high state and give me an example of a low state. Um, so just sharing a border, we have like Wyoming and Colorado. There's a huge discrepancy between ad prices in, in Wyoming and Colorado. And so if, you know, you have a visitor coming to your site from Colorado, but you're charging Wyoming prices, you know, you're, you're missing out on, on that. Hmm. Yeah. It's all, it's all those medical marijuana people and all their digital ads been just blowing, blowing it up. <laughs> Yeah, lots of uh, ads for snacks. <laughs> Snack ads, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I think that's I think that's fascinating. And so, what is it if you're a digital publisher? How do you how do you parse that? Like, how do you find a way to uh, to kind of like make sure that you're not being, I guess, for lack of a better term, like taken advantage of in that dynamic? Yeah, you can you you know you can start to break it down, um, you know, more more to a more granular level. Um, but, you know, then the question becomes like, well, what is a statistically significant granular level? And so this is a game where it starts to get really complicated really fast. Um, you know, you can break down the average price for the United States, um, but then there are some states where there's way it's way above average, some states where it's way yeah, the, below average. Colorado-Wyoming. Yeah, Colorado-Wyoming example. Yeah, and or like Florida-Alabama or, you know, there's these states that share a border but just aren't, you know, um, have a huge discrepancy in the prices. Then you have to wonder, well, how many visitors do I actually have from Wyoming? You know, I have, that's a, there's not a lot of people in Wyoming. So, you know, how long is it going to take to get a statistically significant sample of Wyoming? And these, these things get diced up. The more that they get diced up, it gets harder and harder. And so this is where, you know, at, um, at Ezoic, we, this is why, why we've developed this AI is because it can actually solve this problem. So it's in it. It's hard to do that on a per site basis, isn't it? Because you don't have that sort of statistically relevant data or confident data, and that's the, that's the same thing when you have a cookie and you you know you cookie a user and say, okay, if I can learn what this particular user likes, but if you're only seeing them once every like couple of weeks or whatever, it's going to take you years to get any data on that specific user. So how does uh, you know how do I actually know the answer to this, but. Just explain how the uh, how you how you do that. How do you um, bring down the probability of making an error or improve the probability of getting you know the, uh, a good result? If that's not the, a, a weird question. Yeah. So um, you know, there's there's all sorts of different ways to like algorithms that can solve this. Um, but you know, we we like to start with. Um, you know, one general way place you can start is sort of looking at the average and sort of looking at the optimal average across your whole site. And then you can kind of divvy up and say, well, um, you know, I have users from the United States versus users from, um, you know, somewhere in like Southeast Asia or something where the CPMs are a lot lower. And how do I find these dividing lines where I'm not completely gutting my data set and looking at, oh, gee, you know, I have, you know, one visitor from Wyoming, but they were just, you know, they just put a $1,000 bicycle in their cart on Amazon. So there, maybe that CPM is going to be way higher and like an outlier. Um, so there's statistical techniques that you can use. Um, you can start to develop some AI um, to do this sort of algorithmically. Um, there's a lots of ways to, to sort of tackle that problem. Yeah, it's really interesting, and I think that that fundamentally is, uh, I think, a way that this industry is shifting in a positive way. Is like 
the the ability for us to maybe leverage things like artificial intelligence and and all the data that we're able to collect now um, to essentially personalize the internet, right, John? So this is something that we've I, I know you've talked about it a little bit before, but you think that that's potentially the future, right? Yeah, definitely. I think it's possible. I think it's going to happen. I think um, me visiting a website with my history, my you know propensities, my you know my age, not just people like me, but actually me, uh, maybe I should have a different user experience to you. You know, going to the same site, look at because it knows kind of what I like. What I you know, I it knows that I. You know, those clickbaity ads, I really don't like those. Let's get rid of those because I, I never click on them anyway. Um, sure you don't. No. <laughs> I sucker. never click on it. You're a sucker for bottom-of-the-barrel native ads. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell. But that's the thing. I mean, I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to, um, you know, in the next five, ten years, we'll get into a place where browsing is less annoying. People, you know, that you have a naturally better user experience and that we can, you know, fundamentally help you know this this amazing thing called the internet um, get get healthier and, and get the ecosystem working so that everybody the content producers who are on the wrong side of that information asymmetry that we were talking about where, where it is hard to price your product um, you know we can get to a point where this is more balanced out and that, that you know the good content and and the good content producers are sort of floating to the top and getting paid more and the bad guys are sinking and floating to the bottom if you will to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> well john it's been really good to catch up with you and actually do the podcast again i know you'll be stateside with us here soon so we'll have a chance to do some more of these these live podcasts together and to say that we have probably more to talk about is an understatement but i think tomorrow actually we'll get some really great insights from some of the largest publishers in the world yep. and um i will we'll be able to share those with our audience yeah we're going to video it and uh be on our youtube channel tomorrow night probably yeah uh, yeah it'd be great so um yeah and thanks greg as well hey thanks for having me guys it was fun so uh thank you guys for joining us once again uh, i'm tyler bishop this was john cole and then we had Dr. Greg Sterick with us as well. And so um, we will be back at you again next week. Uh, sorry for the delay. Um, it just kind of happens that way. We were out gathering up as much information as we could so we could bring it back to you. So we'll continue to do that, and we will see you next time on The Publisher Lab.